please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through cross, through cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, you guys can grab a seat. All right. If you are in Kingdom Kids, now is the time to uh, head over and meet your teachers. So if you are in the preschool class, you guys can come on over to this side over here. If you are in uh, K through 1, come on over here to this side. And elementary is going to be right here by the uh, sliding glass doors. So kids, thanks for joining us. Have fun back there. Got a nice full house today. It's always good to hear uh, the sound of uh, lots of kids around, isn't it? That's, that's a sign of a good, a good thing. So uh, kids have fun back there. Everybody else that's here, uh, welcome once again. Thank you for joining us. So we are uh, walking through a sermon series through the book of Ephesians here at the King's Church. And I feel like I say this every week, but man, these passages are loaded. And I feel like we're like, I mean, we're only tackling like eight verses today. It's not that much, but there's so much uh, going on here in the book of Ephesians. And so excited to jump into it once more. Uh, this morning. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the passage that Cadence just read for us, but uh, one word shows up four times. I think it's the theme of the passage, and that one word is the word peace. So I want to begin this morning by asking the question, are we experiencing a lot of peace right now in our world? See, it's been a tough week, hasn't it? We live in a world that is certainly marked by unrest, hostility, rivalries, polarization, and even as of this week, renewed warfare, don't we? I mean, just think about all that's going on in the world. I mean, Russia invaded the Ukraine this week. There is warfare going on. Lives are lost. There's geopolitical unrest that kind of ripples out from this action. Uh, here in our country, there continues to be political polarization, and that's, in, that's all, not just here, but around the world, we're seeing that to be more and more the case. Uh, there's a rapid rise in the last few years of hate crimes. And that's just what's going on out there. Let's think about our own just selves in this. I mean, are we feeling peaceful? See, the studies would show that the number of people who say that they have no close friends has quadrupled in this generation from previous generations. Suicide rates are up a third since the year 2000. Depression is up. Addictions to things like opioids are wrecking havoc in our world right now. I mean, does it really feel like we have any peace? It doesn't to me. And we come to a passage like this, 
And the declaration that's made from the Apostle Paul is that Jesus is our peace. And so here in the church, those of us who believe in Jesus, are we experiencing that peace? Or has all of that sort of bled into our community here? You see, I don't think we're immune to these things. All of those things I just listed impact us on a day-to-day basis, don't they? There might not be a more timely word for us right now in this moment than truly considering how Jesus is our peace and what that means for our lives here in the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at today in our passage this morning. You see, last week's passage that Brandon preached through for us, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it talked about our alienation from God, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. This week is going to build on that idea of once but now. Last week, it was individual salvation. This week, it's going to look at our corporate identity in the church of Jesus Christ. We once were alienated from God, but that's not all. We also were alienated from one another. The things that fracture and divide us in our world and even within the church can feel insurmountable at times. But brothers and sisters, here is the good news this morning. Jesus has made peace. In fact, that's going to be our main idea. Jesus has made peace in the church through the cross, reconciling us to God and to one another. Jesus has made peace in the church through the cross, reconciling us to God and to one another. Before we jump in, let's pray. And I also do want to pray for uh, the church in Ukraine and those who are facing persecution and warfare around the world. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we come before you this morning and we uh, know that our world is not one that is full of peace. Uh, We know that it is full of hostility, division, warfare, uh, polarization, and just brokenness. So Lord, we come into this space this morning uh, feeling the effects of all of that in different ways. So I pray today, whatever we're uh, feeling as far as this lack of peace in our lives, that we would uh, take that to the cross of Christ today that you would show us from your word, your word that you have gifted to us, what it means to truly find peace in Christ. So give us, Holy Spirit, the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and the hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. In your kindness, may you draw us to repentance. May we truly be one in the church, not marked by division and hostility and differences, but marked by our shared confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And Lord, we do pray for those uh, in the Ukraine this morning. We pray for uh, the church this morning, who uh, many of them already met underground in homes uh, on this Sunday. Uh, We pray that you would uh, keep them safe. We pray that in uh, this great time of need, that you would help them to boldly proclaim the only hope for a broken world, which is you, Jesus. We pray that you'd put a stop to this evil and this warfare, and that you would strengthen Uh, your saints, and you would draw those who do not know you to know you through these actions that are taking place. Lord, be with all who cannot gather uh, openly and safely on a Sunday like we can here, and we pray that you would strengthen them today as they seek to proclaim this message of peace to a broken world. Help them in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today as we walk through this passage, I just want to break it down in half. I want to look first at a hopeless past, and then secondly, at a reconciled present. 
What Paul is doing here is he is giving a sort of spiritual biography for the Gentiles in the church of Ephesus, which Ephesus would have been a primarily Gentile church, as in non-Jewish. And he begins by drawing the Gentiles' attention back to their life before Christ. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, the Gentile's life before Christ was pretty hopeless, is where he's going to end this. It's not a pretty picture. And Paul jumps right in by keying in on the division that existed between Jews and Gentiles in this time period. And this was not a minor disagreement. This was not a slight bias from both sides that existed between these two groups. There is a reason why Paul will keep using the word hostility, hatred, throughout this passage. Each side of the Jew-Gentile divide was extremely suspicious of the other. And they were prone to name-calling, to putting down one another, to making sure they know their place in society. So, for example, in the uh, man-made customs of the day of the early church, good, faithful Jewish people, they didn't even associate with Gentiles. The Jewish religious leaders of the day argued that if a Jewish person even shared a meal next to a Gentile, it'd make them ceremonial unclean, because Gentiles ate food that was considered unclean by the Mosaic law. And at the time of the early church, because of that, most Jews would not even go into the homes of Gentiles. Some rabbis of the day, and listen, these are the religious leaders of the day, taught that Gentiles were created by God solely to fuel the fires of hell. This is a deep hostility. On the other side, the Gentiles were extremely suspicious of the Jewish people. They viewed their religious beliefs as very rigid and strict, and their way of life by following the law as strange, and their exclusionary nature as reason for suspicion. They seemed to the Gentiles to be this privileged group who walled themselves off from the rest of society. That's the kind of division we're talking about here. And we get a glimpse of that in this passage. Paul reminds them that these Gentiles that are in the church now were often derogatorily called by the Jewish people the uncircumcision. Now, if you're new to church, or if you've been in church, let's just acknowledge that's a little weird, right? Like, really? That's where they're going? What is going on in this sermon? Let's back up for a minute. Circumcision is a big deal in the biblical storyline, and it's a very big deal in the history of the Jewish and Gentile relationship with one another. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and his people Israel. It served the purpose of marking them off as holy, as set apart from the rest of the nations of the world. But ultimately... This physical mark was a spiritual sign that was meant to point to a far greater reality. It was meant to point to a heart and a whole life that was set apart in holiness to God. This is why the prophets and Paul talk about a circumcision of the heart. That is the intent behind that physical act. But the Jewish people took it as a place of pride. And they lobbed this uncircumcision term at the Gentiles to remind them they are the outsiders. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've ever been called a racial slur, 
if you've ever been put down for your looks or your accent or some physical feature about yourself or about your family of origin, about your religious beliefs, your language, anything like that, you know how painful this can be. But this name calling is far more than just words. It was meant to remind the Gentiles who was in and who was out. And in a very real sense, the Gentiles were indeed outsiders to the true God of the universe. They were spiritually at a disadvantage compared to the Jewish people. In fact, Paul lists five disadvantages that they had. He just rapid fires them right there in verse 12. They had five disadvantages. Let's look at them. First of all, they were separated from Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Christ is a title. It's a Jewish title. It means Messiah, the anointed one of God. But this was a distinctly Jewish reality. The Gentiles, who did not have the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, had no knowledge of a coming Messiah, of a Christ that they were awaiting. They were separate from him. Secondly, Paul says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel existed as a nation state under God's rule and reign. They were a theocracy, if you remember that term from your civics class. They had access to God's presence through the tabernacle and the temple, and the Gentiles were foreigners to this. And because of that reality, thirdly, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Being a part of the people of Israel meant you were a recipient of all of the covenant promises of God. Those covenants defined the relationship between God and his people. And above all else, they ensured that he will remain committed to them, no matter what. In our community Bible reading right now, we're reading through the book of Genesis. Genesis is a jacked up story, isn't it? But God has made a covenant with Abraham. He has promised that he will be faithful to that covenant through all sorts of jacked up people. And it's not about them, it's about him. His covenant faithfulness will go forth from Abraham to the patriarchs to Moses to David. He promises that they will one day be made into a great nation. That all the families of the earth will be blessed through them. That someone from the line of David would rule and reign over their people forever. And all of these covenant promises, they ultimately find their fulfillment in the coming of Christ, who is the long-promised Messiah, where all the promises of God find their yes and their amen. But the Gentiles, no awareness of this. See, these first three disadvantages uh, excluded them from Israel, and that was a big deal, but it led to these final two devastating realities. Paul closes by saying they had no hope and they were without God in the world. Paul says they were hopeless and they were godless. Now this doesn't mean they didn't place their hope in something or someone. Of course they did, we all do. We can't help but do that. It also doesn't mean that they were strictly atheists. That was very rare in this time period. Gentiles on the whole would have worshiped the pantheon of the Greek and Roman gods. But Paul says they were hopeless because they were without the true hope for a broken world. He says they were godless because they did not know the one and only true God who gave them that only hope in a broken world. See, Paul's drawing a connection between their worship and their hope. You worship anything besides the true God of the universe and it will leave you hopeless. It will let you down. 
Paul says, this is the situation for you Gentiles before Jesus. As we step back, that's quite the list, isn't it? The Gentiles are outsiders. Paul's going to say in verse 13 that they were far off. But I think it's interesting that Paul is reminding them to remember this. After all, this is after that reality. They're in the church. But Paul twice commands them, remember that time. Remember before you were saved by the grace of Jesus. Now, some of us don't like that. Let's be honest. We want to forget what's in the past. After all, Paul says that somewhere. He says, hey, I'm forgetting what lies behind and straining for what's ahead. So why is he commanding them to remember? Is he just rubbing salt in the wound of these Gentile believers? I don't think that's what he's doing. Brothers and sisters, Paul is urging them to remember because he wants them to grow in their gratitude and their love for God who rescued them out of that situation. It wasn't that they were meeting him halfway. It wasn't that they figured out how to get in on this thing. No, God went and grabbed them from that hopeless state and saved them by his grace alone. And as they grow in that gratitude for God, it then ought to ignite a gratitude for one another in the church. Brian Chappell says it this way. He says, why does Paul tell us twice to remember? Well, there can only be one answer. We too easily forget. Either because we do not want to face the pain of what we were, or because our pride tempts us to erase the shame of what we were, or because we do not want to confess that we are no better than those we judge. We forget the grace that God designed to bind our hearts to his truths and to the hearts of others claimed by his grace. It is too easy to forget, too easy to be proud of our differences, too easy to embrace our prejudices, too easy to nurse our offenses. So the apostle says, remember, remember. And again, this Jew-Gentile divide, outside of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ itself, you could argue it's the primary theme of the New Testament. How in the world do a people who are that radically separated from one another, that alienated, that hostile, how do they possibly exist in one community together? Most of the New Testament is about that. So Paul begins by saying, Gentiles, don't forget where you came from. Stir up within you a humble, worshipful repentance. Do not act in pride. And this was essential for them to grasp what came next. So if that's their hopeless past, then let's talk about their reconciled present. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, himself is our peace. See, back up at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, they're dead, but now Christ has made you alive. Now in this section, this is who you were, but now in Christ Jesus. You Gentiles who were far off, you who had been separated from Christ, you who had no expectation of his coming as Savior, you have been brought near. The wonder of this should never leave us guessing most of us in this room, by the way, are Gentiles. That wonder should never leave us. We were not on the inside, we were on the outside. But Christ has brought us in. All of those disadvantages have now been overcome. And the key phrase is right there in verse 14. This is true because Jesus 
himself is our peace. It's emphatic in the Greek. Peace is the theme here. It shows up four times in these verses, like I said earlier. Now, when I say the word peace, what comes to mind for you? When you think about a peaceful situation, what are you thinking about? Well, this week, we probably have in mind the lack of conflict or warfare. But on a more personal basis, what do you think about? Most of us feel at peace when circumstances are good, right? When things are clicking for us. There's no opposition happening in our lives, whether it be at home or at work, in our friendships, in our marriage. Maybe peace is simply enjoying a vacation and unplugging from it all. Maybe peace is when the kids go to bed, when the assignments are all turned in, right? What does your mind go to with peace? These can all be true, but peace in the biblical storyline is a big deal. Peace is not merely the lack of warfare, though that is surely part of this picture. This word is actually rooted in the Old Testament concept of shalom. Peace is the sense that things are the way they're supposed to be. Think of the Garden of Eden before the fall. That is shalom. Mankind in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, and perfect relationship with creation itself. It signifies a wholeness, a fullness. It is all things set right. And don't miss what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that peace is not found in circumstances. Peace is not found in the absence of conflict. Peace is not found in a program. Peace is found in a person, and only in a person. Jesus himself is our peace. Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied that that Messiah to come, he would be known as the Prince of Peace, that his ministry and his mission would be marked by a peacemaking agenda, that all that has gone wrong, all that fights back against the way it's supposed to be, will one day be set right through the Prince of Peace. Let me just pause and ask this morning, are you here and are you looking for peace? Are you looking for that peace? Let me urge you that you will find it nowhere else but in Christ Jesus. He himself is our peace. You will not find it anywhere else. Only one person can bear the weight of the hopes of humanity. Only one person can set right all that's gone wrong. Only one person can end all the hostility. And it's Jesus himself. And the reason why we can trust that is because of how he brought about this peace. Notice that the text makes a big deal over and over again about the blood of Christ. How have we been brought near? By his shed blood on the cross. Jesus is our peace precisely because of an event that no one could rightly call peaceful. He brought peace through the violent and hostile act of crucifixion. Paul over in Colossians says that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross is key to this peace that we all long for. There is no true reconciliation without it. See, the rest of this passage is an unpacking of the relationship of peace to the cross of Christ. And Paul is going to use four verbs to ground this. There's a lot of action words going on here. We're going to list them off in just a minute. But I want you to see that none of them are actions that we do. They're all actions that have been done for us by Jesus himself. 
There is something about the cross, something about that wooden cross 2,000 years ago outside the gates of Jerusalem that really is the solution to all the hostility. And so what's going on there? Let's look at these verbs. So he says, Jesus himself is our peace. Then continue in verse 14. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's the first thing he's done. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in one sense, this was not a hypothetical wall. You see, in the giant temple complex in Jerusalem, at the time this letter was written, there are multiple layers and courtyards that granted a narrowing accents, access the further you went into the temple. And the outer area of this complex was what was called the court of the Gentiles. And from this courtyard, the Gentiles who came to the temple, they could look up and see what was going on, but they were barred access by a giant wall beyond that area. And this was not merely a subtle reminder of their outsider status. You see, from this time period, we have records of the messages that were posted on that wall at the court of the Gentiles. If you go to a museum in Istanbul, you can see a recovered sign that was on that wall that says this. No foreigner may enter within this barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who was caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Not, per, not prosecution, but death. You see, this was a literal wall of hostility that divided off the Jews and the Gentiles in their relationship to God and their relationship to one another. Now, when Paul's writing this letter, that wall was standing nice and strong there in Jerusalem. It wouldn't be destroyed until 70 AD when the Romans took it out. But here's the thing. It may have still been standing, but it had been stripped of its power. You see, 40 years before that, when Jesus died on the cross, it says, in his flesh, through his death, that wall that stood between them, it's been rendered useless. There was no more barrier between Jew, Gentile, and God. In fact, the temple now is not a place that you go to, but a people that we become. That's next week's sermon, though, so come back for that, okay? The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. But there were other walls that were up, and that's where Paul goes to next, verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, there was a physical wall in the temple, but there was another wall placed around the Jewish people, and that was the law, the Mosaic law given to the people of Israel. And this law was all-encompassing for the Jewish people. It established their entire way of life, down to the food they ate, the way they kept time, how their work week was to be arranged, how their sacrifices were, be, were to be offered. Every part of their lives was addressed in the law. And by the time of this writing, by the way, the Jewish rabbis had then comment, basically made a bunch of commentaries on that law to specify the number of steps you could take on the Sabbath just to make sure we don't break that law. It was extensive. Now, the law itself was good. It was meant to mark Israel off from the other nations of the world as a people set apart. But the law, in that sense, was ultimately a temporary reality. You see, God had a vision larger than just the people of Israel. He told Abraham, the father of the Israelites, that the nations were going to be blessed through him. And Paul says that through Jesus' death, he has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a fancy way, I think, of Paul saying the ceremonial aspects of the law, 
they've been dealt with. The laws that dealt with cleanliness, food, drink, festivals, regulations, the things that marked the cultural life of the people of Israel. Christ had come and fulfilled all those things we're pointing to. Which means that wall has now been broken down, just like the wall that divided that temple courtyard in Jerusalem. But the law also is something that brings about awareness of sin. It kind of operates like a mirror in that way. The moral law of God shows us our hopelessness to keep God's righteous commands on us. It convicts all of us of sin. But Jesus has not just fulfilled the law. On the cross, Paul says, he has borne the curse of the law. If you do not follow it at every step, we are cursed by it. And it says in Colossians that Christ has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. John Stott sums it up like this. Jesus abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Both were divisive and both were set aside by the cross. The reality is, though the law was good, laws don't change hearts, do they? The law became a point of division, and this wall of division has been taken down through the cross. That's on the negative end. Now Paul shifts to the positive. Keep going in verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That wording is so crucial. Paul's vision for the church is not merely unity, but instead oneness. And I think there's a difference between those I want us to track. It's not merely unity, it is oneness. There's a subtle difference, but crucial difference between the two. Notice here that God is making something new in the church. In the church, Gentiles are not becoming Jewish, nor are Jews becoming Gentiles. No, he is making a new community, a new humanity is literally what it says, a new corporate body. And this oneness is precisely what Jesus prayed for in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's praying out to the Lord. He's thinking about all that's going on, and he wants his people to grasp the peace that is offered to them through what he's about to do. And he prays this in John 17. He says, the glory, talking to his father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now, do you feel the weight of that for just a minute? When Jesus is like, okay, how do we talk about the oneness of the church? What's like the most like unified thing we can think about? Oh, I know, the Trinity itself. Because that's how Jesus is praying for us right now. Just as Jesus and God the Father are one, look around, so too are we to be one. That's a profound thought, isn't it? I don't think we think about unity in that way. Now, that means oneness is not the identical, I want to care about my phrasing there because you'll get it in a minute. Oneness is not identical to sameness. Oneness and sameness are not equivalent. We see that in the Trinity itself, don't we? Yes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are one, but they also are three distinct persons. You see, oneness is not sameness. In Galatians 3, when Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
He doesn't mean that they all of a sudden stop becoming Jew and Gentile any more than they stop becoming male and female. But because we have all received equally the grace of our Lord Jesus, it invites us into a oneness that overcomes our divisions but does not eradicate our differences. That's pretty hard to grasp practically, isn't it? I don't think our world has a concept for that. But together, in the body of Christ, in all of our distinctions, yet oneness, we are pointing to the reconciling power of Jesus, the one who is the head of this body that we've been brought into. He is making one new humanity. And then finally, he is reconciling both Jews and Gentiles to God. Look at verse 16 and following. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's a powerful picture. And now, by the way, the Jewish people are brought in. If you're like, what's going on with the Jewish people? Well, they show up here. Because here's what's going on. When we look at the cross, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You see, both Jew and Gentile needed a vertical reconciliation with God. Both were alienated from him, and both needed Jesus. The Gentiles who were far off and the Jews who were near both needed his grace and mercy. And in fact, it was this nearness to God that often blinded the Jews for their need for Christ. Maybe you can think about it this way. Uh, you know in your house, you invite somebody over. I know it's like COVID times, but we should still do that, right? Invite people over, open your home. It's hospitable, okay? And when they come in, they might like start asking you like questions about the pictures on the wall. And you're like, I haven't thought about that in forever. Like we should change that, right? But they're like, who is this? You're like, oh yeah, it's like my estranged uncle. It's kind of a weird story, right? We're so near to it, we're, we grow numb to what's going on around us. That's sort of what's going on with the Jewish people. They're so near to all of these benefits that they missed what was there all along. And so Paul says, listen, there is a double reconciliation that takes place at the, at the cross, and it kills the hostility. When we see, brothers and sisters, that our greatest offense, which is sinning against a holy and righteous God, when we see that our greatest offense has been taken care of because of Jesus, now we can move toward one another with the same measure of grace that you and I have received from Christ. It is the empowering work of Christ that then moves us to reconcile with others horizontally. When we rightly relate to God, we then can rightly relate to one another. We can become one, a new kind of people marked by the blood of Christ, which means now, as Paul says, we approach Jesus not through a physical temple where only some could get in, but we approach him through the spirit of God that has been poured into all of our hearts, bonding us together in peace. Now, that's a lot of gospel doctrine, isn't it? I told you it was just seven verses, so I give you a heads up. And it is beautiful doctrine. But this series in Ephesians here at the King's Church, we are trying to connect gospel doctrine with gospel culture. Because quite frankly, we can proclaim all of that gospel doctrine, but yet in a culture, not see this reconciliation happen. Still put up walls. Still draw lines along racial, socioeconomic, political, you name it. On those kind of lines, we can draw and put up walls still. 
And so what are the implications of this doctrine for a culture that wants to be about the gospel? Well, there's endless possibilities, but let me just suggest a few here as we wrap up today. Uh, The first is this. I think we should lament when division, exclusion, and walls remain in place in the church. I think we should lament. Uh, The civil rights leader, John Perkins, says this. He says, there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. You believe that to be true? I do. But then he says, but we have some work to do still. I think he's right. All of this doctrine is true. Then, if that is the case, there should be no insider-outsider dynamic in the church of Jesus Christ. It cannot exist. The culture around us is built on rivalries, on tribalism, on division. Everything is fueled off of that. And it surely bleeds into the church at different times. And I think whenever we see that happening, we ought to lament. Because we lose credibility to bring the reconciling gospel to bear on the issues of the day when we fail to lament where that exclusion and those walls still remain in a body that's been reconciled together by the, body, by the blood of Christ. We lament when we see it not happening. Secondly, I think we should listen and pursue meaningful conversations. One of our core values here at the King's Church is faithfully pursuing meaningful conversations. Conversations, by the way, are not just one person talking. It involves listening. This is, this is if we are one body in Christ, one new humanity, if one part of the body is hurting, then the whole body hurts. If one part is in pain, then all parts are in pain. The divides of the day, whether they be along whatever lines we want to draw, they are often complex. They're not easy and simple solutions to dispense. And so we ought to be a people who are pursuing listening, who are pursuing meaningful conversations, who are actually talking about the hard things, actually dialoguing with other people about what's going on, listening especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ and coming with a posture of humility. I think we should listen and pursue those conversations. But then lastly, we should declare and display the gospel of peace to a broken and hostile world. There's a pastor in Australia named Mark Sayers, and he kind of diagnoses that secular culture desires the kingdom of God without the king. They want all the ethics and the benefits of the kingdom, but they reject the king. And I think we see this in a massive way on this conversation about diversity, don't we? I mean, our culture is rallying around unity and diversity, and those are good things to rally behind. But friends, we know that unless Jesus is at the center of that, it will not work. It will have a shelf life. It can only get so far. And so we have an opportunity to declare to the world around us our King Jesus, the King who was crucified so that we might have peace with God and peace with one another. We are called to be ambassadors of that to a broken, hostile, fractured world. I don't want to skip ahead, but in Ephesians 3, Paul says this in verse 10. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's an astounding thought. Paul is saying that right now, the manifold wisdom of God in the church is making known who Jesus is, not just here, but to the heavenly powers. 
All things know who Jesus is because he looks at the church. But here's the cool thing. You know that word manifold that he put there in the middle? It's the same word in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of Joseph's coat. That the multicolored, multifaceted, rich, diverse body of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God seen through this diverse body of a new humanity proclaims the gospel to the world. And so church, that's us. That is who we are. We are a part of that. We display that manifold wisdom by declaring and displaying Jesus himself, the only one who is our peace. So this morning, if you're not at peace, I'd urge you to look at the cross of Christ. There is where our peace is found. And if you're here and you have done that, I also want you to look around. This is a body where we ought to be making peace together. After all, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. It's part of the ethic of being in the body of Christ. So where do we need to pursue reconciliation together? I think we have work to do, but here's the good news. Jesus is reigning as king, and he will see this through. And we have a chance to point to him and him alone as the power for this work. So church, let's link arms and do that together. Well, as just a way to model what I just suggested, uh, I actually want to lead us through a, uh, a prayer of lament together. Uh, we do this occasionally at the King's Church. Lament is a category that's often lost in our prayers today, but if you read the Psalms, uh, they're all over there. They are off, they're just raw, honest cries from a place of pain for the Lord to move and do something. So in the face of all of the division that we see in our world and the division, quite frankly, that we still see in the church, I want to lead us through this prayer together. And so like we do in other portions, uh, I'll lead through it. And then when there's an underlined portion, I want to invite you to corporately uh, voice that along with me. And this prayer comes from uh, Isaac Adams, who's a pastor now in uh, Alabama, in a, a book called Weep With Me, which I would recommend uh, for you. All right, let's pray this prayer together. Father, it often seems like we're far from that revelation vision where every tribe is united around your throne. Instead, it feels like we're at Babel. We're together, but we're fighting. We're talking, but we're speaking different languages past one another. Oh, Lord, with the frustration among us, it seems your churches are under your judgment still. But, Lord, we now look away from the division behind us and in front of us. We turn to you with our grief by your grace. Oh, God, would you give us grace to cherish Christ more deeply and to remember how your judgment has fallen on him instead of us. Help us to sincerely live as what you've made us in Christ, one new man, a chosen race, that the world may believe you sent your son. Until Babel is completely undone, we beg for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's continue to pray. Uh, Father, may you uh, hear our prayers in that way. May you bring the reconciling power of the gospel to bear uh, within your church, and may we then proclaim that reconciling power to the world around us. Uh, Lord, in the face of all of the warfare, hostility, and brokenness that exists here, uh, may we make much of Jesus. Jesus, may you make your peace known to a people who are far off and to a people who are near. And help us here at the King's Church to be just a little picture, a little embassy, a little outpost of the kingdom of God. And may you use us to point to the glories of Jesus. 
So draw us where we need to be uh, drawn in your kindness to repentance. Increase our faith in this way. And help us to embody your manifold wisdom that you've revealed in and through us, we pray in Christ's name.